one thing I wish I learned earlier, I learned it, but probably halfway through was trust yourself, trust yourself and your authenticity, trust that you are a completely differently designed human being that has something special that you were designed with. Allow yourself to use that. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Danny Wasserman here for an extra special episode. Someone who, after the recording of this reveal episode, we both reached out to each other and said, we're going to be friends. We're going to be in each other's lives. And I am humbled to have the privilege to call this person a friend of mine. Let's tell you a little bit about her. With over two decades of go-to-market experience, first starting in sales, seeing an absolute embarrassment of riches of success there, was subsequently tapped to take that track record of success to the marketing world. And in that time has been recognized as a marketing exec of the year. But what I find really refreshing about this individual who, if you cannot connect the dots, is none other than Jalene Miller. Well, she talks about the pre-existing stigmas across both sides of the aisle and overcoming those, dare I say, tenuous tendencies by trusting the other person and assuming positive intent and that one cannot be successful without the other, but that having the exposure as a seller and as a marketer very much engendered a lot of credibility and success as Jalene stepped across the aisle. Along the way, one of her closing thoughts that I love so much, how do you maintain a balanced life where you're both professionally succeeding alongside maintaining vigilance to your mental and physical health. Something that she says should never be sacrificed. With that said, can't wait for you to hear the brilliance, the wisdom, and the grace of my new good friend, Jalene Miller. DJ, spin that. Ladies and gents of Reveal, welcome back to another weekly episode. In the Gong Studios today, someone who has coined the term self-identifies as a global growth executive. Love that title, and we're going to understand how she got to that place because she didn't start there. In fact, with nearly 20 years of sales experience in a variety of different organizations from the likes of Insight and Verizon to Concentrix, she's done it all. And along the way, what I found fascinating about her pedigree, at one point, she pivoted after kicking ass in sales into marketing. So we're going to understand how this psych major from a small liberal arts school back east is now absolutely taking names with influence over hundreds of thousands of people in her career across over 40 different countries. In the house, we've got the president of Jalene Miller Enterprises. We've got the eponymous Jalene Miller. Jalene, welcome to Reveal. Thanks, Jerry. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, my God. Okay, so let's start back at Khan College. I'm also a humanities major from a liberal arts grad school in the Northeast. What is it about psych that you think contributed, if at all, to this totally illustrious kick-ass run you've had? 
<laughs> I get that question a lot, actually. And I love it. You know, actually, I, I usually say, well, it's pretty easy. I went from dealing with one set of crazies to the other. <laughs> you know, at Con, I was a psych major, a double major, actually, psych and, and child development. And yeah. so, you know, how many times in your life are you, you know, thinking that you're you're working with people that are somewhat childlike and or yeah. maybe have some issues, right? All of us do. All of us have those those tendencies and all of that. So really just, you know, understanding, you know, in my education at Kind, being able to understand how the human mind works, how behaviors work, you know, certainly, you know, understanding children and how they grow and, and they develop, it just lends itself to working with the, the general population. And I would say in any your, any career you're in, but particularly when you're in sales, and then if you go into marketing, all of you know people's personalities, tendencies, traits, yeah. characteristics come into dealing with them on every level and in every means. Was there ever a point, I think about this question because I sit within enablement and I am a student of behavioral economics and buyer psychology. And I've been asked this question, so I'd love to hear your perspective, which is knowing the domain expertise, which you possess from your collegiate years, do you ever find an ethical dilemma about using our brains hardwiring against our prospects? Is that ever a point of reckoning for you? Like, is this like fair for me to be using or is it an advantage that you feel can still be used in our profession responsibly? I never had an issue with it. <laughs> but honestly, yeah. I, it never was a dilemma for me because you know, we're taught, and I think, again, in any career you're in, but particularly in sales, you're taught to use all the information that you have and the intelligence yeah. at your disposal. And now, now as we go into, you know, the age of AI and even more of, of intelligence that's coming, I think we yeah. have a responsibility to, to examine all points of data and all points of knowledge and figure out how you best achieve um, what you need to going going forward. So I I never really had a problem with any of that. Appreciate that. No, I think that reframing is, well, if you're not going to be using that form of intelligence in those faculties, someone else will, and that's fair game. So really yeah. helpful. I want to look at the run you had because you went on a total terror in sales. And <laughs> again, studying your LinkedIn from being a strategic seller up to a sales executive across numerous organizations with a remit that spanned seven, eight, nine figures. It was a massive amount of responsibility and there were IPOs along the way and new rollouts. Like, okay, you have that kind of gist, like <laughs> enviable run. And you're like, okay, I'm going to go to marketing. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Actually, the way you define me, I love it because you make me sound like a little bit of a badass. So thank you for that. <laughs> I don't think it's up for debate. I think we can certifiably say, in addition to being a global growth executive, you are a textbook badass. <laughs> I love it. Thank you very much. It is fun to look back and go, wow, you know, you know, so often when you're in, uh, when you're in the heat of everything, whether it's one position or you look over maybe the course of the last three years, you're in heat of, of, of the battle, whatever battle you're in or whatever season of life you're in or your career, you kind of, you never step away from the, you know, the, the forest a bit and, and you, you can't, you can't see clearly all you've done. Yeah. It's interesting as I've kind of stepped out of the, my latest corporate role to look back and go, Oh my God, I actually have had the opportunity to do a lot of things that, that I used to think, well, everybody does this. And you go, wow, actually very, very few people have done it. So the journey has been a cool one. And I'll, I'll say, I, um, you know, I, it, 
it wasn't a choice of mine to okay. go to marketing. So that's going to be an interesting conversation, right? Um, looking back, it was such a blessing to do it and such a, a great opportunity. But as I, as I advanced throughout my career, you know, going from individual sales to, to sales management, um, I had an opportunity. So I'm going to take us back a little bit earlier in my career where I had an opportunity to uh, leave um, Insight, which is a wonderful organization. I still call it home, if you will. Where I was yeah. running uh, a couple billion dollar uh, global uh, budget for sales. And um, I got tapped on the shoulder to go work at a million-dollar, I'd say, reorganized startup that uh, John Waltman owned, one of Sam's sons. And it was just, you know, here I am running $2.5 billion worth of a sales budget, and what, I'm going to go run a million-dollar budget? What is that? Um, But it was an opportunity to to really grow something from nothing and had this little marketing component to it of as we grow this company – is it named the right thing? Is the, you know, are we really going to market the right way? All that kind of stuff. So I, I ended up taking control of marketing there on a very small scale. But as I was selling, realized that whatever material, probably the, the earlier consultant had given us for marketing, yeah. wasn't lending itself to what salespeople had to talk about or what salespeople would talk about. It wasn't actually hitting the the market realization the way it needed to so i said well hell we got to change the name (laughs) and we got to change this marketing material this all sucks and and by the way it was under my remit so what a crash course in in marketing if you will traditional marketing figuring out how do you take a new market a name to market what is the right name what all those things i kind of had to just figure it out and it was on a small scale which was great so if we then fast forward and a few years later, I'm at Concentrix, right? We're, I started, we were a $50 million run rate business, and we ended up uh, doing a, a, a sizable acquisition. Uh, we were about $220 million run rate at the time, and we bought a $1.2 billion piece of IBM. <laughs> it was their industry vertical business. Yeah. It was actually, I believe, the largest uh, divestiture of IBM's personnel in their history, not product. That was Lenovo, I believe, but it was personnel. So this little, this little engine that could concentrics, you know, as I said, 220 million run rate. I think we were at about 9,000 staff. We pulled $1.2 billion worth of revenue out of IBM and about 35,000 staff in 19 countries. And with that, with that came a couple hundred salespeople that had been selling these services. So I was running the global sales org for Concentrics, but it was really clear that the sales team coming over from IBM and their leader was the right choice as we as we blended these businesses, right? So I thought I'd leave the organization, right? Okay, that happens all the time in M&A. And the president, um, who I reported to for a number of years, said, no, 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 I want you to go do some, I want you to do some client engagement stuff because you have a different perspective on things, and I want you to do a little bit of marketing. <laughs> well, when we announced, or when we got ready to announce the uh, acquisition, we had to get our ducks in a row as an organization, and I will tell you, you'll appreciate this, Danny, we at Concentrics at that time had one static web page. That was it. Wow. Yeah, we were going to go to the world and announce <laughs> that we were going to bring this piece of IBM over. So very quickly, this little bit of marketing 
ended up being, hey, work on all the internal communications we need, work on the external communications with our parent company to the market. Hey, we need to build a website that isn't going to crash when you know hundreds of thousands of people say who's Concentrics and go to it. And, oh, now we got to figure out how we communicate who we are right to the staff. So it was um, it was a crash course in massive marketing in a in a short period of time. And so um, I didn't want to do it, but I loved Concentrics. Yeah. You know, who, what salespeople want to do marketing? We all think that marketing doesn't know what they're doing right? at the end of the day. So it's actually ingenious that Chris said, hey, what better what a better opportunity to build a marketing organization than to give it to somebody who doesn't actually appreciate marketing in the first place from a sales perspective, right? There's so many points I want to unpack because <laughs> you as a sort of sales executive looking at that previous organization saying, this marketing stinks. It yeah. doesn't pass the sniff test. It doesn't cut the mustard. And you know that better than anyone because you've been customer facing. So you kind of organically find yourself doing these marketing activities. And then fast forward to the concentric absorption. I, I mean, the question I have because you were so successful at sales to know what will and won't resonate internally and externally mm -hmm. in the chicken and the egg question to be a successful marketing leader to you as a precursor have to have then been a former seller to know what will and won't land. Dude, I love that question. <laughs> I love that question because now as I've been in uh, the last year and a half consulting with a lot of businesses, it's interesting. I find oftentimes and even in some of my board work, I get the the reaction. Wow, I don't I don't talk to marketing people that mm -hmm. think like you. And I would I'll always tell you it's because I'm not a marketing person. I am a sales executive, right? And I'm, I'm passionate about that. That is transition into marketing, and I think I have a healthy respect for marketing. So please, there are there are traditional and fundamental marketing um, marketing objectives and activities that. I need to hire people to go do because I'm not great at that and yeah. they do add value. But I think as you look at strategically setting something up, it's if you haven't carried a bag, <laughs> if you haven't figured out how you're going to get the attention of someone in three seconds in a call or in an elevator or on a golf course or wherever, if you've not had the pressure of having to do that and have it end up in sales and true growth to the business that can point back to that, I'm not so sure you have a true understanding of, of, of how, you know, how much you have to narrow in what is critically important for that one person in their situation to understand. So, you know, you always hear a lot of times if, if I'm evaluating some marketing um, material or a marketing strategy, I look and I say, could I put any other business in place of the name of the business that I'm working with? And if I can, well, there's nothing unique about that. Yeah. And also, and I can also look at, does anyone really care about what marketing is saying? People mainly care about how are you helping me solve a problem? More so, how are you educating me on a problem that I didn't even know I had yet to save my ass? Right? And there you get into the difference between what I would call sales and biz dev. Yeah. Very different. Right. So I think I think in this day and age in particular, I would encourage people that want to have a marketing career to really pick up a bag, even if it's only for a year, even if it's just, it's a, play that role. You got to You got to sort that. And then I would tell the salespeople that think they have to go through a trajectory and always do sales. Don't be afraid 
of going to market, you can actually change the trajectory of what more support sides of the organizations are doing for you in sales if you get control of the strategy and the vision for those support organizations. So I think you actually rise the tide of everybody yeah. and you have a, a, a much better opportunity to impact the business. So we have had sales execs on reveal. We've had marketing execs on reveal on both sides of the aisle talk about this pervasive tension where fingers are pointed and they're snickering and they're sneering and salespeople say, marketers, that reeks of fluff. What the hell were you thinking? Was this cooked up in a lab? And then marketers look at us. I'm a former seller as well. I've carried the bag. Mm -hmm. And marketers say, those braggadocious egomaniacs, they just stomp through everything without any regard for the actual rigor that was applied to building this. And I wonder, you've brought so much of your sales lens to the role of marketing. By extension, were there things that were put forward to you that were kind of these, oh my God, eureka eye-opening moments where, again, thinking about historically coming from a sales background, you had no idea about X, Y, or Z. And thank God, marketing illuminated for you a new perspective that was almost really refreshing and novel. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a great question. And I think, you know, we as salespeople, sales executives have to own up to the fact that sometimes we're lazy as hell. Right. <laughs> Sometimes. Right. And we don't like to yeah. dibble in the detail. I mean, there's some there's some I would say more on the account management side. There's more uh, more detail and more management stuff that's happened. But if you're talking about hunters, rainmakers, people that are just let me get after it and go, go, go. We yeah. suck at detail. We don't follow up. We don't make it easy for people to support us because we keep a lot of stuff in our head. So yeah. we have data that never makes it back over to the marketing org, and that is not fair. And it's not helpful for anybody, right? So, and we like to, to control a lot of that too, because, you know, help. we got egos. <laughs> we want to be the ones that everybody goes to and holds up on that pedestal. Totally. So if we, if we have that information and that data in our heads and everyone needs to come to us, that feeds a little bit of that ego too. And we don't, I think also we don't necessarily realize hey, well, I solved this problem. Somebody else can solve that problem this way too. And, and so I think there's that data transfer, that knowledge transfer, and even I'd say the detailed follow-up that, that I would say oftentimes does not make its way back to a marketing organization. And so marketing then is left having to perform a supportive task with not all the information there. I would also say that really good, like, really great sellers, um, at least traditionally, it may be changing a little bit now, are so uh, involved with dialogue with their mm -hmm. client, the good way. A lot of that time they're talking, we're doing more in, in digital now, but there, there are tactical processes and procedures, particularly in digital, that really can help us hone who we need to focus on, right? It's in, and even some of the, the work that your organization is doing now, that sometimes I think sales poo-poos a little bit and just says, no way, that's not going to be helpful. I know I know what it is right now. now. Sales only looks to marketing when sales isn't making their numbers and they need somebody to go generate leads. I would tell you, sales, get off your ass and go talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. Go talk to the market. Don't wait for somebody else to start generating your leads. Get out in the industry. Talk to, your, to the, the market. Talk to prospective clients. What are you doing? you know, to make sure you're getting those leads. Don't sit lazily aside and wait for somebody else to get it to you. Physically healthy employees 
are simply more productive. Supporting this theory isn't just Jolene stipulating that point. There's actually a study by the CDC, which identified that physically active employees are 27% less likely to miss work due to illness. But get this, those same physically active employees are 32% less likely to miss work due to presenteeism, something I had never heard of before. But get this, presenteeism is being at work, but not being productive. So to be successful in one's career, as emphasized by Jolene, it's not enough simply to put your butt in the chair and put your head down and grind. You got to make sure that you're paying equal respect to your professional and intellectual growth alongside your physical and mental well-being. Let's get back to Jolene and hear a little bit more. When you talk about prototypical personas in sales, and this is a generalization, but the words you talked about, oh my God, like get out of my way, I know what I'm doing, or oh my God, I'm lazy. What are effective strategies, both for our marketing brethren listening, but also for salespeople to come away from this episode and realize, hey, maybe there's something for me to learn here that, yes, I've been successful maybe because of my bold and daring and at times stubborn persistence. Mm -hmm. And yet, Mm -hmm. how do we remind people to balance what is a key aspect or quality in, in sales, which is that grit and that tenacity with the humility too. What have been effective yeah. ways where you've penetrated the mind share of sellers who more often than not probably are resistant to it? You know, I think um, there's probably a couple of things and it's an interesting question I'd like to ponder even more. The, but I think first of all, there needs to be, and there should be a, I would say a respect, a purposeful respect for each one hmm. yeah. <laughs> that is given. Right. Because I think inbred and I'm not just talking about the surface respect. People say, oh, I respect salespeople or I respect marketing. No, you don't. Not, like If you get down to your heart of it, you know, if, if each I hate to say side, but side of the house would think about really dig in to say, what's the stuff I don't like about salespeople? <laughs> what's the stuff that I complain about all the time? And the salespeople, what's the stuff I complain about marketing? Right. And then actually start to dig into, well, what's the stuff that they would say about me? Right. Yeah. And start to have this reflection of, OK. There's a value on on both sides, and and there's a there's a healthy respect that we need to we need to give to that. I think one of the things that, and it took me three years to learn this, um, when I I mentioned earlier when I was given marketing, and you know I decided I'm still on the senior exec team, I'm head of marketing, all that. It literally took me three years to actually embrace that position and be happy about it. Hmm. I was happy outside. On the surface, woo! You know, I was doing all that stuff, and uh, yeah, I'll give I'll give the credit to Chris Caldwell, president and, and CEO of Concentrics. Um, he did the right thing, and he constantly was telling me how important it was that I was in marketing, and this was the this was the a pivotal role for the organization, especially as growing. But it took me three years, Danny, to realize. First of all, he meant what he he was he did mean what he said, and realize it was because. I was the one out front that was setting the message. I was the one that could create the story that a salesperson could wrap themselves around and really internalize and get out there and communicate. So here I was as the next sales executive, now really in a chief marketing officer type role, EVP, and still thinking, well, that kind of sucks. It's nothing. Yeah. How horrible is that when you think about that? It took me three years to realize 
someone in that position has the ability to be the rudder of the ship of where we're going. And I didn't even realize that. So I have a healthy respect for what marketing can do because they're out in front of anybody that's going to go have a conversation. And I think salespeople need to, need to get that and they need to then start thinking about and communicating to marketing what is resonating when they're having conversations in the market. What changes are they coming across? Because they're the ones out there every single day talking, right? So I think sales needs to do more of that. When I now say marketing, and say I think one of the reasons why the sales team loved me in marketing was because I wasn't sitting behind the desk in marketing and doing stuff digitally on a screen and all that. I actually was still out in the market talking to influencers in the market. I was talking to analysts. I was, you know, I was very, I was talking to clients. That was one thing I was really clear on. I was going to still talk to clients and prospects. I was called into a lot of sales calls. If we had challenged relationships, I was brought into those because of my background, but I could actually be quote objective with a client because I was on the marketing side. I wasn't trying to sell them something. Right. So I could go in and bring, you know, still bring, from a mark to the marketing group, a, a true real time, relevant, current understanding of what prospects, what was resonating with prospects, what they were worried about, what clients were concerned about and what the market influencers and the analysts were thinking. So I would have, I would, my advice to marketers would be get your ass out into the market. Don't hide behind a desk, be active, put a point of view out there yourself. Don't stand behind the company. You take a stake on what that is. Yeah. Have those conversations that salespeople are trying to have under a little bit of a different light, but have them and, and see what you learn. Awesome. As you're talking about the internal dialogue you were having, it's the EVP of marketing that optically anyone would look at that, but what an awesome kick-ass role. But you yourself having these almost sabotaging thoughts of this isn't legit and I was on yeah. this other side of the house before and here how I find myself in this, I don't know, dumpster fire or whatever. It harkens back to what we've had other coaches and executives talk about, which is if you're having those destructive thoughts internally, you've already forfeited the race. And I think for <laughs> anyone listening, whether they're a marketer or a seller, do yeah. you believe in the role you possess and the company you work for, what you're doing is purposeful. And I think in particular as an enabler where we carry so many stigmas about those who can't do teach and we're a cost center and we couldn't hack it in the front yeah. lines. I had similar thoughts early on in my enablement career. And it's only been in the last 18 to 24 months where I've stood up with pride. Yeah. And I think this profession, what we do has nobility to it. And I was probably holding myself back for a number of years subconsciously because in my mind, there was this back and forth, I should be doing something else. So I just appreciate the candor that it took you some time to really oh, yeah. lean into this newfound identity. Well, I think the other thing that's really interesting that's coming to mind as you're talking is, especially I think when you make the move from sales to um, to the marketing side or, or say any other, any other support, more traditional yeah. support organization. In sales, you know, it's just, we live and die by our numbers. We got a freaking scorecard every day, yeah. right? And we, and those of us that love sales and that's what we love that. I mean, we thrive on it without that, that report card and that constant, you know, affirmation and reinforcement. And yeah, you're kicking ass. Holy crap. You're doing well, especially when we're, you know, selling past teams and, yeah. and just all kinds of stuff. So there's a real clear understanding 
when, you know, of how you're doing every day. And you can make those adjustments if you need to, or, you know, you've got your report card and it's set up there for everyone to see. When I went to marketing and particularly in Concentrics, a brand new freaking organization, we're having to stand up a marketing and internal communications organization from scratch. What's the report card? <laughs> What's the report card? And so much, you know, the sales has more of that instant gratification where marketing did it. And we had to really sort, how do I know when I'm actually doing a kick-ass job? What yeah. are those things that everyone agrees on is is good and then you know when you when you start peeling that back more so we talked about okay we've got to have a a great you know mission vision we got to have great collateral we've got to, all these tool things we've got to have a, a incredible pipe that's that's generated for the sales team yada 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 and do that but the when you start peeling it back even underlying that it's like well does that does everybody agree that those are the right Points and what I started realizing, I used to get up on our in our internal, you know, we, we would do big, you know, several thousand people at once internal things. I was always on the stage, uh, you know, leading a lot of that. And when I was rolling out uh, new branding, yeah, right. Um, one of the first things I said was, um, you know, uh, I who in here has a has an opinion on marketing and the brand and. No one raised, very few people raised their hand. I said, you guys are all full of shit. Every one of you has an opinion, right? <laughs> and none of you agree with each other. So, you know, that whole concept of you get a scorecard, yet it's still not agreed it, for everybody because yeah. somebody's going to say, okay, you rolled out branding. Well, you're going to have somebody that says, man, that new branding shit, <laughs> right? And everyone, someone else is going to say, oh, that new branding is awesome. So which is the scorecard that you allow yeah. You know, so that was a, I think that was part of the challenge of how you, how you make that move and maybe you experienced it. But I, you know, as I've, you know, as you said, I've kind of been this self-appointed now global growth executive. So when people ask me, I'm not sales and marketing, I'm sales and marketing, but I don't yeah. like that because that doesn't imply what is critically important to any organization that you work for or any of the people that you're responsible for. It's the growth of both that is the end result that actually matters. So sales and marketing are generally put together, but to me, I think it needs to be one combined growth organization where people are compensated and scorecarded, if it's a yeah. word, on the same thing. Otherwise, it's still that that tension where I don't think you bring you really integrate both uh, properties, uh, capabilities, and and impactful tactical stuff together. I don't know. I just said a lot. Is that too much? No, no. <laughs> well, we we want to hear the unvarnished <laughs> truth from Jolene. So now you are a global. I'm going to restate that. Now. You are a global growth executive. You've achieved massive amounts of success, and your LinkedIn pedigree says that in spades. I think now you have this point of achievement, Jolene, where some of the pressure of having another notch on your belt or this accolade or that I don't know, accumulation of financial security, like that is no longer up for debate. And it reminds me of this amazing line from Harrison Ford, which is, Money's really important, 
until you have it. And I love that <laughs> line great. because it talks about depressurizing our ambition and our pursuit of success. So now you're at this place where you can slow down and you can see the forest through the trees a bit. So in thinking back on what is a wildly successful multi-decade run, what's some of the advice you would give your younger self who's back in that AE, IC role grinding? Because now you can look back and say, what were those formative moments where, yeah, I saw an inflection point and I did the right things? Or what are some of those other moments where you were wrapped around the axle and you were totally chasing the wrong thing or were distracted by a red herring? You know, great question. Um, I, first of all, I want to say, I, I would hope, but I'm pretty sure that my younger self wouldn't have listened to any advice that I would have given her. (laughs) If we're clear, because I had incredible mentors along the way and successful people that just, Oh, they were just so good to me. And, and they said very similar things to me along the way. Um, I think, you know, three people in particular were just with me along my entire career. And, and I, I really had a hard time internalizing what they said. Um, and it's not till, you know, now getting out of it, I look back and say, Oh my God, I just, so much of my challenges were self-inflicted. <laughs> just such their wounds, right? I think so, um, for me, the advice that I, I, I think there's a couple of things. Um, I would advise someone to be really careful of uh, physical health. So I I never really was not healthy. However, the stress that I put on myself and just working 24-7 and all of that, I know that that I was tired so much um, of my early years in particular Mm. in ways that probably didn't allow me to see clearly. Like I just... I didn't sleep. I, I just, it wasn't until last year that I actually slept more than three and a half hours a night. And I wow. thought, Oh my God, <laughs> I need that. I didn't know I need that. Right. So it was always this, I've got to show everybody I'm on. I've got to be online all the time. I've got to be there, you know, tw- especially when, you know, I mean, I started when there was pagers. Oh my God, I'm dating myself. <laughs> you know, when my pager was going off and then, you know, got to cells and all that stuff where I was just constantly, I need to be on, I can't sleep. And I think that is, a problem and you really need to make sure you're, you're yeah. healthy so that you can breathe. Um, you know, there's a big push for mental health now, which I think is really important. And yeah, be careful because people say work-life balance and that does not exist. There is no such time your work and your life is going to be completely balanced. You're never going to get there. I think it's understanding when you're getting to a, a tipping point with one. So I think um, looking back, I'd say be careful of your physical health, get the right sleep you need so that your reactions are um, maybe aren't so automatic on no sleep and there you can ponder a bit more. That would be one. Um, One one thing I wish I learned earlier, I learned it, but probably halfway through was trust yourself. Trust yourself and your authenticity. Trust that you are a completely differently designed human being that has something special that you were designed with, allow yourself to use that. Mm-hmm. Embrace it. Cause I didn't for a long time. I'm extra. 
I'm really extra. <laughs> I'm dramatic. And you know what? That's a good thing. And for times I really squashed myself because I didn't think I should be. And it was when I allowed myself to be authentic, have some fun, not, not perform like someone else always needed me to, that really accelerated. And then I think the last thing would be never, ever, ever lose your confidence. And I had so many mentors say that. I was so hard on myself, so hard on myself. I would not forgive myself ever. And that, um, that would play into my compass level. I could, I could overcome it. I could pretend like I was overcoming it. But man, if I had learned those lessons earlier, I think I would have enjoyed my career even more than I, I've done. Well, the line you talk about in not deprioritizing physical and mental health, a mentor of mine talks about in his 20s and 30s, he treated his body like a rental car. And yeah. I love that's a great that's a great description. I love that description yeah. because speaking from personal experience, I think it's really hard when there is a lot of positive reinforcement societally. Say, I push the limits. I push through limits. I only need this many hours of sleep or I'm willing to go the extra mile. And I'll tell you, I was celebrated for that for many years in my yeah. career and compensated for that. And this past February, I pushed through a limit one too many times and the lack of sleep and the amount of stress I was absorbing triggered an episode of Bell's palsy. Uh, and I had facial paralysis from the amount uh, of work and stress I was contending with. And it was such a profound moment for me to realize it's not worth it. That's right. And fortunately, my face has recovered. But you think about people who succumb to heart attacks oh. or, I mean, far yeah. worse and at times even fatal symptoms. Yeah from it. So I, I love that point. And the other thing I would say back to this notion of not leaning into your authenticity took me years to just appreciate and accept my natural gifts. I believe we are all endowed yeah. with these intrinsic skills that far surpass the standard deviation or the median of what everyone else in society can do. And if we continue to deprive ourselves of those gifts, we do ourselves and the people around us a disservice. So to unlock and celebrate our authentic yeah. and full selves and trust that in doing so the success will follow. But how often do we actually pigeonhole ourselves because we don't believe these gifts are actually the gifts we should have. I agree. There's a couple of comments I, I want to make here. Um, one, and it's probably for another time if you ever agree to have my crazy self back. Um, I have a great example of where I, I was really first time ever. I think it, owned my authenticity and my dramatic side. Yeah. And I actually, uh, there was two instances. One, I went to my current boss at the time for a one-on-one -on -one and he turned around and I actually had a tiara on my head. <laughs> so I was, I was going for a big ass and I thought, let's just make him make it known that I am the queen here. But the other is where I actually took something that was, um, uh, of relative importance off of one of my, clients or my prospects desks when he dared me and I still have it today. So it's kind of fun to be go. You can be authentic. You can be bold and how people react to you. in that is, is a great, a great story uh, to tell. And there was something else you had said. It was, we were talking about, Oh, uh, your physical being 
I think one of the things we didn't talk about much in our time together today, um, which is a whole other uh, conversation we could have, is around, you know, as you grow in leadership, and I know there's a lot of people listening that are in leadership's roles today and want to continue on, you know, we, we really, or at least I, made the mistake so often. I, I would say I don't expect my team to do it. I do. And, and there's several people, like you go on my LinkedIn, there's several people that have been nice and said, you know, she never requires more of us than she do for herself, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. But I think we need to be careful of the subliminal messages that we're telling people, and especially when, when you start to get into a global career and you start having to manage across multiple time zones. And, you know, when I was up doing things and sending emails at three in the morning and being on a call at five and doing another one, you know, maybe one o'clock four, people see those things and start to, even if I say, I don't expect you to keep these hours, they start to. So we as leaders need to really take a look at ourselves and say, what are we doing that's maybe causing harm to our team you know, um, even though our words say something else. And I just don't think there's been enough focus on that. Um, and, and I think we need to be careful of that. Well, I appreciate the call out. What are we saying verbally versus what are we doing that's sending a completely maybe contradictory signal? Yeah. Well, I'm looking at the clock. And as we wind down, Jolene, this has been so fun. Thanks for I the last. I had so much fun with you. Like, this is great. I want to do it again. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's awesome. certainly going to be a second and a third episode <laughs> to build out the Jolene Miller anthology. <laughs> so we have solidarity across all of the episodes that we've recorded, of which there's been over 200. We've asked wow. every single one of our guests the same concluding question. It's this. If you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? Just one Okay, I'll, I'll have to go with the first thing that came out of my 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 mind. Fun. Say more. Fun. It's just uh, you said one word. So well, we, we have we have one word. Now let's elaborate on <laughs> but, that. <laughs> um, you know what? You get to meet so many different types of people when uh, you have responsibility for selling. Uh, you get to hear so many different perspectives and philosophies and thoughts and you get to really examine what those mean for you you generally get to um you know you're doing business and and having conversations that are serious but you also get to be usually in situations that perhaps you wouldn't get to be on your own whether they're at events or things like that i just have i love people i love learning i love you know hearing different perspectives i love having a healthy debate with somebody that doesn't necessarily share my opinion. And I love persuading them and winning them over. Or I also love saying, you know what? I hadn't thought about it. You're actually right. And I'm going to move on from that. So I think when you wrap all that up, that to me, it's just fun. That's life. You're living, it's breathing. There's energy around everything you do. So how can it not be fun? And it just, I don't know. I love it. Love it. A career that can oftentimes be thought of as high pressure, high anxiety, incredibly just tight stakes to remind everyone listening, there's such capacity for us to be enjoying it. 
Yes. And to relish that not every profession is fun like sales. So I love that. And along the way, we got a healthy dose of the dramatic, dare we even say, <laughs> the extra amount of unbridled emotion that is totally characteristic <laughs> and signature to you, Jolene. So I think it is a perfect textbook capstone to what has been a super fun operative term, <laughs> a super fun episode. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the global growth executive herself, Jolene Miller in the house. Jolene, this was a really fun episode. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performance sales teams, then head on over to gong.io. If you like what you heard, well, along the way, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you may listen.